Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Listeners, there are very few things that move me more than books that chronicle grief. Books that shake you to your very core with earth-shattering raw honesty. Books that lay bare the depths of human emotional response to the death of a loved one. The Cookbook of Common Prayer by Francesca Haig is one such book. Set between Tasmania and London, the Cookbook of Common Prayer explores themes of grief, food, mental illness and hope in a thoroughly compelling and unique manner that left me breathless till the very last page. For that reason, it gives me a huge thrill to welcome Francesca to the podcast today. Hi, Francesca. Hi, Claudine. Thank you very much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Francesca, I'm still reeling after finishing this breathtaking book and finding it a little difficult to put into words how much it actually affected me. A book that explored grief on so many levels and from different perspectives. It was heartbreaking but uplifting at the same time. Just brilliant. So thank you for a beautiful read. Well, thank you for your very kind words. I'm so glad it had that effect on you. So tell me, Francesca, what inspired you to write this novel? I have always been fascinated by family dynamics. And growing up in Tasmania, I was also always very invested in, uh, in landscape and, and the way that the places we inhabit shape us. And I, I had written when I was in my early 20s. My first book was a collection of poetry which dealt quite explicitly uh, with themes of eating disorders and sibling relationships. And I then thought, oh, well, I'm done with that now. I don't want to be boring and write the same thing again and again. So I set out to write a completely different book. And I I wrote three post-apocalyptic young adult novels, thinking that that was about as far removed as, um, as I could get from the themes that had preoccupied my poetry. And then my husband very gently pointed out that actually the Fire Sermon Trilogy, those three books, were actually still about islands and sibling relationships and in some ways were still hung up on imagery that connected to eating disorders, the sort of technical post-apocalyptic horror involved people in tanks with tubes up their noses. Um, And so then I realised I had more to say and I, I was still obviously hung up on these ideas and I wanted to explore them more. So the cookbook of common prayer is me sort of no longer running away from those themes, no longer running away from Tasmania, which I left when I was 17 and really turning back and saying, okay, why am I so hung up on these? What are these ideas that fascinate me and and trouble me? And so it was a real relief and a real sense of honesty to turn back to them and think, okay, I want to write about a family. I want to write about grief. I want to write about eating disorders and I want to do it without analogy. Um, And that was the driving force behind this story, which is about a family that's dealing on the one hand with the traumatic loss of a child and on the other hand with another child suffering from an eating disorder. As a mother myself, I can't imagine Jill and Gabe's devastation when they learn about their son Doogie's death. Each of their responses were entirely understandable, but so different. So I wanted to ask you how you drilled down into their grief. How was it that you got inside their head? To explain a little for listeners, it's when their son dies in a, a freak caving accident on his gap year, 
the the father Gabe and and the mother Jilla are both devastated, obviously, but they do react, as you've said, Claudine, in very different ways. I think once once I began writing this, I had a very clear idea of their characters, and and I didn't want to be terribly literal and make it about they you know they were defined by their their jobs, but that did did help to think about what they'd chosen to do with their lives because that had a real effect on on the way that they reacted. So Gabe, being a scientist and an empiricist, he tries to to come to terms with Dougie's death by. Uh, by finding out facts, by trying to work out the sequence of events, by throwing himself obsessively into the the coronial inquest process and trying to become expert in caving and meteorology and, you know, the particular medical minutiae of his son's injuries and so on. And and that becomes his fixation. Jill, on the other hand, is a food writer. And and as a writer, she's, she's a storyteller. You know, she's not a novelist, but there is a narrative in every good recipe. And so her way of dealing with it is, is essentially denial, you know, and that's when they make the disastrous decision as a family to, to not tell their sick teenage daughter, Sylvie, who's suffering from an eating disorder and is in a secure hospital ward, when they decide not to tell her about Dougie's death because they think it will push her over the edge. Um, Jill gets lost in that lie and, and Dougie used to write letters to his sister in hospital and Jill begins to, to fabricate more of these letters I think I was very interested in the way that that we seek consolation when terrible things happen. I, I never wanted to just dwell on the sadness, on the grief. I think that can be self-indulgent and I didn't want to write a book that just ripped people to pieces and, and didn't show them any way of putting them back together again. Mm. So I was interested in the way that Jill and Gabe are each seeking for consolation, but the tragedy of what happens to them is that they seek in, in very different ways and their obsessions aren't complementary and so they, they become really drawn apart while Jill becomes consumed in this increasingly elaborate lie and Gabe is over in London caught up in this investigation neither of them is a bad person they're both doing what they think is right and in a way what they have to do to survive this unimaginable tragedy but of course there are consequences for the rest of their family and for their relationship so just picking up on what you've already said you know the book is told from a number of different perspectives we have Jill and Gabe but we also have their other children Teddy and Sylvie so what I found quite remarkable about this book was the insight that it gave us into how family tragedy impacts on all members of the family. So as you said, we've got Jill and Gabe dealing with their grief in very different, very disparate ways, but then we also have Teddy and Sylvie and the way that they're dealing with it. So I wanted to ask you, was this approach deliberate on your part and why? Well, I think for characters to succeed, they have to be individual, as individual as we all are as people. And so it, it was conscious in me that their responses would be different. And I think for, for a book that deals with such very, you know, potentially very dark subject matter, and this is the the death of a child, the sickness of another child, that's really heavy stuff. One person's view could be suffocating. I think the reader could get lost in that. Mm. Um, It was more interesting to me and also offered some cracks through which the light could get in to to present a range of responses Um, because it's the conflict between those responses that makes them interesting. It's the way that those different responses are not necessarily complementary. That, that places additional strain on the family. Now, you mentioned Jill and Gabe's decision not to tell Sylvie about Dougie's death and hence the letters. You know, they fear that it will be the news that will tip Sylvie over the edge. I can understand why they did it initially, but it was a, a risky move, wasn't it? Oh, I mean, it's, it's objectively a terrible decision, but people don't always make the right decisions in horrifying circumstances. So 
I could understand the sort of raw terror. You know, Sylvia is not just unwell with an eating disorder, but as with many eating disorders, there's a sort of host of related psychiatric problems and suicide attempts and so on. So I could, I could really viscerally feel that terror of, you know, they've lost a child, which is, is an almost unimaginable horror, and then the very real risk that they would lose another. But to sustain that lie, um, you know, even when the medical professionals and friends around them are, are nudging them to, to come clean, I think that's when we get into the realm of self-deception. And, and I always have believed that the, the most dangerous lies are the ones that we tell ourselves. So it does become increasingly clear that Jill in particular, who's most invested in the, the deception, she's ostensibly doing it, of course, to protect Sylvie, but really at heart it's, it's for herself that she cannot face the reality of Dougie's death. And so to continue to pretend that he's not dead is, is a consolation to her because she can indulge too in that illusion. From a reader's perspective, it was her just saying, I'm not, I just can't let go. I'm not ready to let go. That's right. That's right. As a parent of a teenage girl, I was equally moved and horrified by Sylvie's condition after suffering, you know, anorexia for three years and virtually living in a, well, yeah, she did live in a mental health facility. So I wanted to ask you, Francesca, what research did you do to bring Sylvie's story to the page? I had some personal experience in that, like, you know, a horrifyingly high percentage of of teenage girls, um, and not just girls, but but predominantly girls. I had suffered myself from eating disorders, though not as dramatically as Sylvie. And I had had the very difficult experience as a child and, and young adult of a, a close family member that had had an experience closer to Sylvie's. Um, but I'm always at pains to stress that, well, I mean, it would be very disingenuous of me to pretend that that experience didn't very heavily inform my understanding of what happens to a family when when an eating disorder like this strikes. But equally, I'm always at pains to stress that the characters and the you know, specific events and origins surrounding this eating disorder are, are very much fictional. Mm-hmm. Um, but that experience did inform it. I also did, did quite a lot of reading. You know, I, I had always sensed those experiences being interested in, in eating disorders and the way that our society makes them, I think, almost an inevitable outcome for so many young women. So when I was writing Sylvie, I had two conscious aims in mind. One was that I not contribute to that by doing anything that would glamorize uh, or romanticize her illness. I didn't want her to be a kind of pre-Raphaelite tragic figure that has a certain appealing beauty about her. So I was always at pains to stress the hugely unglamorous reality of eating disorders, the you know, the layer of body hair that grows to, to compensate for the, the cold because there's no subcutaneous fat, the horrible stinking breath that comes from um, the process of, of ketosis and fat burning, um, the, the sheer dull bureaucratic misery of life in institutions. Um, and it was very important to me that, that someone reading this, I hope, would, would see and feel that the actual horror of this, you know, what is a horrifying thing, because I think it's very easy for these these sicknesses that happen to beautiful young women to be to be romanticized and and for these women to fall for that but at the same time I never ever wanted to condemn Sylvie I think it was so important to me that I came from a place of understanding how a young woman would very easily fall subject to that illness because of the pressures Um, and eating disorders are fascinating because um, I, I believe there are predispositions, either genetic or personality-wise, that 
it makes some people more likely to, to suffer from an eating disorder, but there are also these huge societal pressures that are almost universal. So while I wanted to depict the tragedy and the grim reality of the illness, I also wanted to never condemn Sylvie for being subject to those pressures because they are so huge and so real. And so I was trying to tread that rather fine line when I wrote the book. Indeed, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I don't think you glamorised it in any way. It was as I said, quite a horrifying uh, reality that you depicted in that book. But also, as you say, you didn't demonise her for it. And you, it was clear that she was labouring under a great deal of stress and pressure in relation to it. And she also understood how it was affecting her family in the end, I think. Yeah. And she, I mean, it affects no one more than the sufferer themselves. And, and I think with eating disorders, there is sometimes, you know, this misconception, perhaps amongst an earlier generation that, that have been less informed about it, that it's willful, that it's malicious, that it's vanity or selfishness. And of course, none of those things are true. It's a disease that happens to some people. But Sylvie is, like, like many sufferers of anorexia, highly intelligent and, um, and emotionally intelligent. So she does understand that other people suffer from it. There's a dreadful moment in the book where Gabe confesses that he would prefer if she had cancer because then they'd all be on the same side. You know, the, the sufferer and the family would both wish for them to get well. And the horribly divisive and painful thing about eating disorders is that those trying to keep the sufferer alive are often really, you know, the, the victim of the eating disorder will see them as the enemy yeah. because that, that's not what they want in that headspace. So it, it's so damaging and painful, as are many psychiatric issues. Um, eating disorders have this really invidious way of pitting family members against one another. Now, almost ironically, as you mentioned, Jill, uh, Sylvie's mum, is a chef and food writer. She deals in many ways with her grief by cooking. And throughout this book, she puts together recipes that mark certain events. For example, omelette for the day, police come to your house to tell you that your son is dead. For Jill, it's not only an act of cooking, but writing the recipe that helps. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about this and why this was Jill's coping mechanism. Well, Jill, as a food writer and a passionate chef, is obviously, you know, fixated on on food. And it's really what's happened to Sylvie is, is a sort of just a another version of, of Jill's own obsession with food, but unfortunately it's taken a dark turn with Sylvie. I think there are a few teenage girls that have uncomplicated relationships with their mothers. I know I gave my mother hell when I was a teenager. It was interesting to me to explore the way that what was a positive, productive passion and indeed a successful career for, for Jill, the mother, became twisted in Sylvie. And her eating disorder, it's very difficult, certainly for Jill, to not take it personally, to, you know, a food writer with a daughter who refuses to eat. It feels like a personal attack in some ways on Jill, though, though of course, it's much bigger than her. And she becomes obsessed with writing these increasingly bizarre, weirdly specific recipes. And, and it is a catharsis for her, I think, because her way of showing affection and love has been through cooking food. And that is, you know, hospitality is a wonderful thing for someone to, to cook for you is a really a generous gift. But when her daughter rejects that, she receives that as a rejection of, of whole, wholesale of herself, really. And I was really interested as well in, in this idea of consuming and devouring because when I, when I first had my son, one of his favourite childhood and baby books was um, Morris Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. Mm. And there's a line in that where the wild things say, we'll eat you up, we love you so. 
Um, and we all say it. We all say, you know, we look at a lovely pudgy baby and we say, oh, I could eat him up or we, you know, we gently bite their lovely pudgy legs and, um, and they, we describe them as scrumptious or delicious. And you see the darker side of that in fairy tales where, you know, the witch in the woods um, devours the children, puts them in the oven. Um, this idea of mothers who devour their children is quite interesting. So we have Jill cooking and eating food and Sylvie getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So I was interested in almost the mythical components of that relationship between food and mothers and daughters. Um, food is a way that they show love in that family, but it also becomes a massive site of of dysfunction and, and trauma. Yeah, because, I mean, at one point, I think earlier on in Sylvie's story, she goes through a stage where she's cooking a lot but she's not actually eating. So she's almost insisting. It was almost like a dare to her family. I want to watch you eat, but I'm not going to eat anything. And I think it might have been Jill that said, we're not going to eat if you don't eat. And so she just stops cooking. Yeah, absolutely. So Sylvie goes through a a fixation herself on cooking and baking and becomes a very skilled baker, but cooks obsessively for her family. And it's a way for her, really. It's not a true act of generosity, the way that baking a cake for a loved one to share is. It's, it's an assertion of dominance. It's a, you, you are weak and I am strong and I have the willpower not even to lick the spoon. It's never a true gift. There's no true generosity there. It was, a, it was all part of the same illness. Now, as mentioned earlier, the book was set between Tasmania, Hobart and a place called Eagle Hawk Neck and London. Um, you live in London now, but you grew up in Tasmania, as you mentioned. So I wanted to ask you, why was it important for you to set the novel or part of the novel in Tasmania? I left Tasmania when I was 17 and at that time, you know, as an impatient teenager, I couldn't wait to get away. And I think on some level I have been thinking about and missing Tasmania ever since. And, of course, I I still go back. I mean, COVID permitting, I've I've not been back for some years, sadly. Um, But I've I've regularly visited and my parents are still there. And I increasingly understood the extent to which living in that amazing place has shaped me. And Tasmania is fascinating because... In some ways, it seems like a very, a very pastoral, very um, tame place compared to, you know, the outback, for example. It doesn't have thousands of kilometres of scorched desert. And there are lots of English expats, including my father, um, there, I think, because in some ways it looks like the sort of rolling hills of England. But in other ways, it does have that very stark side. You know, there are bushfires, there are cliffs, there are rainforests and places where someone could become lost. And underlying all of it, of course, is the, the very dark history of, um, of white invasion and the mistreatment of First Nations people in Tasmania. So I think it's that contrast between the sort of picture postcard elements of the Tasmanian landscape and that unacknowledged black, dark history lying underneath that make it a very potent place. And also the fact of being an island, of course, and Eagle Hawk Neck is a tiny strip of land that connects mainland Tasmania to the Tasman Peninsula. So it's it's almost an island off an island. You know, it's this tiny little isthmus of land, which is always always risky, I suppose, because it feels like you're only ever one high tide away from being cut off entirely. Yeah. So it's a place that's beautiful and and the family keeps being drawn back to Eagle Hawk Neck where where they've spent every summer and have a, a holiday home. Um, 
And so, you know, they have many joyous, idyllic memories of that place, but it's also a place of trauma because bad things can happen in beautiful places, I guess. Something else that I found quite fascinating in the book was your mention in the early chapters of the collapse of the Tasman Bridge in the mid-70s. Now, this was something that I only learned about this year on a recent trip to Hobart myself. You know, it felt quite poignant because at that moment, Jill was kind of saying, as as they're driving across the Tasman Bridge, she was kind of saying, you never think that disasters are going to happen to you until they do. And, and somehow, until something terrible happens, we walk around feeling invincible, don't we? Absolutely. And I think we do. I think it, she mentioned something like, you know, you know, sometimes you try on other people's tragedies for size. And, and I remember doing that as a kid. I learned about the collapse of the Tasman Bridge. And, and I remember sitting in the bath and my dad coming in and finding me crying because, you know, obviously I was a massive drama queen, but I had worked myself up into a frenzy of sort of vicarious grief and terror, imagining, you know, what would you say? What would your last words be as your car was tumbling down into the river? Would you, would you be practical and shout, you know, get out, kids? Or would you just give up and say, you know, I love you. How would you use your last breath? And I really, <laughs> so I remember being that overdramatic child that would sort of imagine myself um, into those tragedies. But then, of course, you know, for many people, you wake up one day in your own tragedy. It's interesting. I hadn't realised, actually, until you asked me that question immediately after the discussion of, of Eagle Hawk Neck, of course, that that's another example of this fixation in the book of tenuous stretches between between places and, and the risk yeah. of being cut off, of collapse, of, of being consumed by the water, which is a big theme in the book. Indeed, absolutely it is. Now, Francesca, not only are you a novelist, but a poet as well as an academic, and given your experiences of writing in different mediums and publishing history, what tips would you offer to any aspiring writers who might be listening today? The, the first, and in many ways, the, the only thing that, that aspiring writers need to hear is that they need to read. I, I don't think you can be a writer, or certainly not a good one, if you don't read um, and, and to read hungrily and avidly and across different genres, because you learn so much from reading. I could put myself out of a job by saying this because I, I have periodically wow. taught creative writing at universities, you know, and that, that's wonderful. And I do believe that it can offer a lot, but I think that reading is the, the best education that any writer can get um, to read, read, read. And I still do it all the time. Of course, you know, I was a, a lot of the things that I did in this book, I, I was able to do. Well, I hope that I've achieved because, because I'd seen them done many times and, and to think consciously as you read, what's this author doing? What choices have they made? What's the effect on me as a reader? And then, then to experiment, how can I do that myself? I was lucky that I grew up in a house full of books. When my parents moved house a while ago, their, their movers chastised them and said they had an unreasonable number of books. <laughs> And that's a hallmark of my family that we don't really recognize an unreasonable number of books. Um, so I was very lucky that I grew up in a, in a family where that was valued and, and available to us. And so I, I think that anyone who wants to write, if you don't have time to, to read, Stephen King famously said this, then you, you don't have time to write. Francesca, you mentioned that you were working on something else at the moment. Are you able to tell me anything more about that? I, I can tell you a little. It's my first historical novel, so it's very different from anything I've written. You know, my first three novels were set in the distant future, this one in the present day, and then the, the one I'm working on now is set in the late 1600s, early 1700s, and well, it's based on the true story of the only two documented female pirates of the, what they call the golden age of piracy, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, 
who led the most remarkable lives. I came across them when I was doing a horrible histories jigsaw puzzle with my son <laughs> and there was a mention of them. And by the time I got halfway through reading the Wikipedia entry, because that was sparked my interest, I thought, well, this is it. I'm, I'm done for. This has got to be the next book. The only risk is that because their stories are so innately amazing and exciting, the very real risk is that as a writer, you can kind of only make it worse. <laughs> the Wikipedia entry is already so good. So you always have to ask myself every day, what do I, what do I add to what's already an amazing story? But it's so fascinating and it's been an absolute pleasure to dive into their lives for the last year or so. That sounds utterly fascinating and I cannot wait to hear more about that in the future. Thank you. Well, um, I hope that it finds its way to readers before too long. Now, if listeners wanted to learn more about you and your work, where could they do that? You can follow me on Twitter at Francesca Haig for my immediate musings. I am on Instagram at Francesca Haig Writes and technical information and, and basics and so on. And you can actually contact me by email at my website, www.francescahaig.com. Francesca, the Cookbook of Common Prayer is a novel I won't easily forget. I absolutely loved it and I wish you every success with it. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Thank you so much, Claudine. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.